As I mentioned, when we started our, our, our time together this morning, we're kicking off a new series called Rally the Family. That's the overarching theme of our work together is Mount Lebanon Climb, so we're heading up a mountain, but we're starting by rallying the family. So a, a, a push of this is, one of the big ideas of this is, this is about us gathering ourselves together on word and sacrament, gathering ourselves together around the mission of God so we can climb a mountain, so we can get something done together. And, and, and that's an important thing, I think, for us as we be, begin a new year as a group. But it's also important for, for you as individual Christians as you, as you get going in a new year and, and live your life for Christ. In fact, it's one of my contentions, and I'll make say more about this in a little bit, that, that we segment our lives into church and home and so on. But really, the, our, our Christian life includes this. Our Christian life in, includes our involvement in a congregation. Our, our Christian life includes word and sacrament. Our, our Christian life involves living on mission, um, whether it's on behalf of the congregation or, or not. And, and so Rally the Family is about us rallying together and our, each one of us rallying our strength in Christ so we can live for Him. And to do that, we're gonna dive into the book of Nehemiah. I won't say any more. You can follow along in the sermon notes. You can also follow along on the screen. We're gonna to be today in Nehemiah chapter one. The words of Nehemiah, son of Hakaliah, in the month of Kislev in the 20th year, while I was in the citadel of Susa, Hen and I, one of my brothers, came from Judah with some other men, and I questioned them about the Jewish remnant that had survived the exile and also about Jerusalem. They said to me, those who survived the exile and are back in the province are in great trouble and disgrace. The walls of Jerusalem, the wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates have been burned with fire. When I, Nehemiah, heard these things, I sat down and wept. For some days I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. Then I said, Lord, the God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps his covenant of love with those who love him and keep his commandments, let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer your servant is praying before you day and night for your servants, the people of Israel. I confess the sins we Israelites, including myself and my father's family, have committed against you. We have acted very wickedly towards you. We have not obeyed the commands, decrees, and laws you gave your servant Moses. Remember the instruction you gave your servant Moses, saying, If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among, among the nations. But if you return to me and obey my commands, then even if your exiled people are at the farthest horizon, I will gather them from there and bring them to the place I have chosen as a dwelling for my name. They are your servants and your people, whom you, God, have redeemed by the strength, by your great strength and your mighty hand, Lord. Let your ear be attentive to the prayer of this, your servant, and to the prayer of your servants who delight in revering your name. Give your, success, your servant success today by granting him favor in the presence of this man. He's talking about the king. I was cupbearer to the king. This is the word of our God. Would you pray with me? Lord God, we, we are called by you, called to faith, called to service, given salvation as a free gift and given work to do while we live here on earth. So let the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts, 
give us those things and spur us on to love and good deeds as we live for you. Let these words and our hearing be pleasing in your sight, God. You are our rock and our redeemer. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So, so today, and really over the next couple of weeks, we want to do a case study. We, we want to do a case study of Nehemiah, his leadership, the, the things that he did, the things that he felt, because this is kind of like his memoirs. You maybe caught that. It's, it's Nehemiah's memoirs, his journal, his diary about what he did and when he did. So we want to do a case study of what he did, what he felt, how he led, what he thought, the actions, his generosity, his faith, all those things. We want to study Jeremiah. We want to study Nehemiah. We also want to do a case study of the people of Israel, what they went through, how they heard Nehemiah, what they did when Nehemiah spoke to them. We want to do a case study of Nehemiah and the people of Israel and see what we can learn from them because I want to make something clear. Nehemiah is not a prescription for how we should do certain things. It's not like we're going to read Nehemiah and say, okay, God says you should do this if you want to chase my mission. You should do this, then you should do this. It's not, there, there's, there's little in Nehemiah that we're going to say God told us to do this. What you see is God's people leading and living in mission for him, chasing the kingdom of God. We want to do a case study. A case study, if you haven't thought that way before, a case study is, is a study of a person a group of people, or an event. It's looking at something, per, something or someone in particular to study everything about that person or event so that we can make some general applications from what we learn from them. And see, that's what we want to do as we get into Nehemiah is, is study them, un, try to understand them the best that we can, and then learn from the rest of scriptures about how do we put this into practice as, as individual people and as a group of God's people. We, we want to learn from them and learn from this case study. And, and I want to make something clear as we do this. Over the course of this series, we're going to lay out some, some encouragements. We're going, to, we're, going to call you, we're going to call you to action. We want, we're going to call you to, to consider and even to do certain things. But I want to make something very clear about this sermon series and about this campaign. Our main goal is not to get stuff done. We want to get stuff done. But, but, but maybe, I'm just going to put this up there. This is not the main point of the sermon, but it's important. I, I want you to get this. We, we're, we're not, our main goal is not to get stuff done, but our main goal is to get you done. What I pray for you as we walk through this series is, is perhaps that you would get more busy doing things for God and re reconsider and think carefully about how you're involved in the ministry, how you serve the Lord in your life. But my prayer higher than that is that God would get you done. And what I mean by that is that God, that through his word, that God would present you, that you would mature in your faith that you would grow up into Christ, right? All I have is Christ. We want to uh, grow up is the image I'm using, so I'll stop talk, thinking about roots. But grow up into Christ, closer to him. And, and what happens when we grow up into Christ and the body of Christ, this is Ephesians 4 imagery, then the body of Christ is strengthened as we all do it, as each part does its work, right? So, so my prayer is not that we get more stuff done. I mean, I hope that. 
but really I hope that God gets you done, that God matures you in Christ. So, so who is Nehemiah? Guys, you can put up the Nehemiah context slide. Who is Nehemiah? Well, if you want to take, be real simple about it, he told us who he was in the opening chapter. Nehemiah was the cupbearer to the king. Now, now this is, so Nehemiah is about 90 years after Jeremiah, just to give you a historical context. So we just finished Jeremiah last year. We're 90 years later. It's about 445 BC before Christ. Nehemiah is the cup bearer to the king. Persia is the ruling power at this time. Persia is the one who's in charge. They're ruling over the area. There's a group of exiles, a number of groups of exiles who have gone back from Babylon, back from Persia. They, they went back. And Nehemiah is serving as the cupbearer to the king. And I want you to understand that the cupbearer is not some lowly servant like, here, king, here's a cup. He was a trusted, perhaps even advisor, trusted leader. We'll see, that, we'll see in chapter 2 and beyond how important Nehemiah was to the king. So, so remember, five, I'm going I'm to throw some dates at you. 538. I want to help you get some historical context. 538 B.C., that's when Israel goes back, to ba- goes back from Babylon. A group of exiles, they go back from Babylon and they try to, they work at rebuilding the temple. 538 B.C. 516 B.C., let me make sure I got that right. Yep. 516 B.C., the temple is done. So 20-some years, 18 years from heading back to temple rebuilt. So now we're 538, 516, 445. Nehemiah is 93 years past the return from exile. And what did he hear? The walls are broken down, the gates are burned, and your people are disgraced. 93 years has passed and they're still in shambles? 93 years and they still haven't rebuilt the walls? 93 years and they still haven't gotten things done? What is going on? What happened? How does 93 years pass and a people not settle their lives, their church, and their city? Well, a couple things happened if you want to know, if you want to think about it. One, you have to realize that there was opposition. They didn't just, the, Cyrus didn't just send the exiles back to Jerusalem and they said, oh, let's get back and build the city. It'll be easy. It was hard. Not only was the work of building hard, but there were, there were people, there were, there were code enforcement officers sent galore to just to stop the work. Letters were sent back to the king trying to get the king involved and tell the king to make them stop their work. There, there were threats, there was opposition, there was persecution. So it's, in some ways it's not surprising because everywhere they turned, somebody was trying to stop what they were doing. But to be honest, I'm not sure that was actually why they never got it done. I think the problem wasn't the outsiders, but it was themselves. I I think initially they were excited about what God sent them back to do. Initially they laid the foundation and they were happy to see what it was done. But I think they got complacent. I think they got lazy. I think they got more interested in their own houses than they were about the house of God. That's what Haggai said, 520 B.C., so before the temple's done. 
Hag- the prophet Haggai comes and he asks the people this question. I think it's convicting. How is it that you're living in cedar houses while the house of God is in ruins? You guys are sitting back and t- living the easy life while God's house is still in shambles. What's up? I, I think at least part of the problem was they were, they were content and maybe prioritized their houses over God's house. I'm not going to stand up here and tell you that ministry and our life together is bad. In, in fact, I think if we surveyed all of you and you all shared how you felt things were going, just in a general way, you'd say things are going pretty well. I mean, we can recount and we will recount the blessings of God to our ministry, to our congregation over all these years. The, the church is not falling in on us. It, it's not in, there are things we can work on, but it's not in disrepair, right? The, the, the ministry programs that we're running are, are good, It's not like we're in trouble. It's not like the city walls are in ruins and we're a disgrace of a church. And at the same time, I think all of you would admit there are things for us to work on. So I'm not here today to say, or over this series to say, we're a mess. But, but I think there's something for us to think about today as we consider Nehemiah's context and, and our own. And, and maybe instead of saying things are bad, we should say, well, how do we, what could, what could happen to us that would make it bad? What are the dangers that we face? Guys, can you, and, and I think one of the dangers is this, we can prioritize personal life. Personal life becomes greater than church life. We set a priority of one over the other. It's Haggai's indictment of the people of Israel. You're living this way, houses of cedar, while God's house is in ruin. And please hear me. Some of you are saying, but what about my family? I've got to take care of my mortgage, etc. I'm not telling you not to feed your family or pay your mortgage. Okay? I'm not saying that to you at all. But if there's something I want to lean into is... We're setting the tooth, we're setting personal life and church life, life as little cubby holes in our life. This is my church cubby, this is my work cubby, this is my home cubby, this is my personal cubby. cubby. There's, there's these little compartments of our life and, we, and so if you have those compartments, you all of a sudden have to rank them, right? This is greater than this. You know, pastors have to answer that question, is it church or family? Who comes first? And what I would, that's a danger for us, right? That, that we would say, this is greater than this. What if, and if I can change this for you, what if instead of ranking these things, we just said, this is my Christian life. And so our, our personal life includes, put that up there, guys. Our personal life includes our church life. You are God's child called by him to follow him as a husband or a wife and a father and a mother. You are called to follow him and serve him at home. You, you are called to serve him at work. You are called to serve him in the community and you are called to serve him here at church. So, so you are a Christian, that's, that's your life. Dear Christian, this is your life. And part of that life as his follower is to serve him in some way as a member of this body. You get the idea. That's, that's one of the dangers. 
that we would put these, these things into little boxes and prioritize one over the other so that one gets neglected. I think a second danger, and, and perhaps this is a greater one, and, and, I, and, I hesit- and I'm, I'm a little nervous to say this when I'm going to say this, we let the gospel excuse our responsibility. We let the gospel excuse our responsibility. Now, this, this one might be hard for you to hear, but let me first be clear. We are saved by grace alone. Amen? Still with me? Right? We're, we're saved by grace alone. Jesus died on the cross. We're washed clean. We're holy. Our standing with God, our standing before God is totally and alone because of the grace of Jesus. Right? I, want, I hope today you're hearing about your baptism, that God says of you, I, you are my child. I love you and I'm pleased with you. Let me be clear. And you also have responsibilities. One of the things that I sometimes hear and sometimes think and sometimes feel, I'm saved by grace so I don't have to. Well, before God, no. But before you, yeah. I can't, I can't, let me be ridiculous. I can't stand up in front of you and say, I'm saved by grace. I don't have to prepare a sermon this week. No, I, I do. You kind of expect me to do that every week. Right? You, you wouldn't come to church if I didn't. Right? And, and yet we say, I, I'm saved by grace so I don't have to go to church. No, not to save yourself, but yes, because God commands it. I'm saved by grace so I don't have to give offerings. Well, no, not to be saved, but yes, because God calls you to it. I don't, I don't, I, I'm saved by grace so I don't have to like, fill in the blank. We, we let the gospel make excuses for us not to be active in, in our Christian lives. I'm saved by grace. I don't have to read my devotions. I'm saved by grace. I don't have to go to Bible study. I'm saved by grace. When maybe we should change the statement and say, instead of letting the gospel excuse our responsibility, the gospel powers our responsibility. Throw that up there. The, the power, dear people of God, for your Christian life is what God has done for you. You're saved by grace. You're you're saved by the death and resurrection of Jesus. You're forgiven by him. And that's the power for service. That's the power for giving. That's the power for everything, for all the the different segments of the different parts of your life as Christians. The power for that is the gospel. Now, when you think about those two things and maybe think about other things, something's going to happen in you. Nehemiah, when he heard the report, What did he do? He wept, and he fasted, and he mourned, and he prayed. Yeah, can't forget that one. He prayed. Now, I suspect, because if I imagine myself sitting in the pew as I say these things, I, I suspect that there are maybe two things happening in you right now. Some of you might be upset at me because I called you out for being lazy. I called you out for letting the gospel be an excuse for, for, for not doing what you're supposed to do. I, I suspect that some of you are upset at me and saying, no, 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 pastor, not true. And maybe you're right. Maybe you are. Maybe you're right when you say, I'm not making excuses. I'm just living my Christian life the best that I can. Do it. But let me encourage you to consider that. If there's a part of you that's mourning that's saying, 
I don't like what you said. I think you're wrong. Let me invite you to just think about that a little bit more. Because could it be that the places where I made you hurt a little bit and squirm a little bit are places that you have an idol? Could it be that the places that you get uncomfortable when I confront them and say them out loud in church? Could it be that those are places that, that you've trusted or loved or desired something more than you ought? You do realize, of course, that it is my job to make you uncomfortable, to, to knock the idols out of your heart. It, it is my job. So if you're uncomfortable, I encourage you to think about why. Is it because I'm actually wrong or is it because I'm right? And you need to confront and confess that. There's another thing that might be happening in you. I can imagine two things. One is that you're upset and the other is that you're sad. There might be others of you, if if you're like Nehemiah, who heard this and you said, yeah, you know, uh, this is what I had to do as I prepared this sermon. Yeah, you know, I'm right. You're right about that. And there's sorrow and sadness and shame because I'm not who I should be. I'm not doing what I should do. Not all the time, not the way I want to, not with the right heart, not with the right attitude. And the thing about shame is that shame makes you want to run away and hide. Like Adam and Eve, they ate of the fruit where they want to do, run away and hide. I want to encourage you, dear people of God, instead of running away and hiding, but to draw near. That's what Nehemiah did, draw near. Draw near to the great and awesome God. Did, do you notice, have you ever thought about how surprising it is that Nehemiah got close even though he was a sinner? I mean, think about the, the God to whom Nehemiah goes. He is the God of might and power who called all things into being. He is also the God who is holy and perfect and who does not lower the bar. You know how sometimes in human relationships we're like, well, you tried your hardest, I'm happy with that effort. Good effort, good college try. God doesn't say, hey, good, I'm glad you tried. Right? Remember God is mighty and holy and his bar is here and anything less than here is failure. It's A plus or F. And yet Nehemiah draws close. He gets close to that God. And I encourage you, don't stay away from him. Instead, draw close to him. Draw close with three expectations. First this, that he forgives. I I know that it's not there in the reading. It's there in the Bible, but it's not there in the reading. But, but what other motive, what other reason would Nehemiah have to draw close to God, confessing his own sin, confessing the sins of his people, cons- confessing the sins of their fathers? What other reason would Nehemiah have to draw close except that he knows that God is a God who delights to show mercy, who delights to forgive, who delights to wash sins away? He knew that God was not going to destroy him. 
Because he knew the story of Adam and Eve. Remember, Adam and Eve wanted to stay away. They ran away. They hid from God because of their shame. But do you remember what God did? Not only did God find them, but God shed blood for them. Where else did he get the animal coverings or clothes for them? He shed blood for them, and then he covered their shame with new clothes. Don't you see that, that in that moment, God was giving a shadow of Christ whose blood he would shed for their sake and whose righteousness would be new clothes for them. You are, dear people of God, you are Jesus with skin on. He's clothed you with righteousness right there at your baptism. A new robe of righteousness so that when God sees you, he does not see where you've failed or where you've made excuses or what you've done wrong. He sees someone forgiven and clothed with glory. So draw close. Draw close to your God knowing that you can expect this because he promises it and because he won it. You, you can expect that he forgives. You can secondly expect that he will see and hear you. Parents, I think you know this is true about your kids. That there's a special gift that parents have to see and hear their kids. You, you can be in any place. Maybe it's here at church. Maybe it's anywhere. But if your kid cries out for anything, happy or sad, you know the, sound, the tune of their voice. And, and you know, you, you, you can maybe listen for just five seconds. You're like, oh, no, that's not mine. He was somebody else's problem. Right? But you know the sound of your kid's voice. You know, you know what it sounds like. You, know, you also know if it's happy or sad. Oh, they're happy. Shoo. Uh-oh, they're upset. They're hurt. You know. Right? Because you know your ears are tuned to the sounds of your kid. Your eyes are trained to them. You can be at a park and your kid, you just, like there's this knack parents have to see their kids. And parents are not always perfect at it, but our God is. He's our Father. His eyes are trained to see us. Like they're folk, like an eagle, to see every little speck, every little bit of our lives. He sees you. Whatever it is that you're going through, whatever it is that we're going through, whatever it is that, that we're up against, he sees us and he hears. When we cry out to him, he hears us. He, his ears are tuned to the sound of our voice so that the moment we speak, he hears it. And it's not distracted listening. You know, the phone in one hand and ear in the other, where you hear the sounds but not actually the syllables. He's paying attention. And he's listening with interest and care. He sees, he hears, and thirdly, he helps. Every time. Every time. His, his help may not be what you want, when you want, or the way you want it. Let's be clear. But he always helps. The Lord is my helper, the psalmist said. I will not be afraid. What can people do to me? The Lord is my help and my strength and my salvation. Whom, sh whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? He helps. Whatever it is, 
He forgives, he sees, he hears, he helps. And we're counting on that. We're counting on that from our God. And, and, and that's how Nehemiah began to rally the family. He didn't start out with some big vision speech. He didn't start out with anything else. He started with quiet prayer and confession. He started with a voice, trained, shouting out to the God who helps. He started with confidence in that God who loves to help his people. And for you, as you live your life for the Lord this year, that's where we start. We start in quiet prayer and confession, laying our sins before God, confident, expectant that he'll forgive us, and asking for his help and strength in the year to come, knowing that God will give it. It's expect expectation. And that's where we'll start too, as God's people gathered here. Gathered here, gathered now. We'll start in quiet prayer and confession. Start with, with a voice raised to God. God, guide us. God, lead us. God, help us. God, use us. Father, this is what we sang in the hymn. Father, take my, use my life in any way you choose. Right? That's our prayer. And let my life forever be a praise to you. And, and we're expectant, confident that God will hear and help. I believe this. Do you? Yeah, all right. Amen? Amen. Now the God of peace grant you peace at all times and in every way. The Lord be with you. And also with you. Amen.